0: All right, here's the hotness. I'm bringing it now.
1: (laughs) Roman, have you ever gotten lost in your work? Kind of hard to get lost when you never leave your work. Right.
0: then you probably can't relate to what happens in this week's graphic novel, Opus, by Satoshi Kone. Opus is about a m- manga creator who actually is into his work. In fact, he's so into it, he literally falls into his panels and has some, let's say, tense interactions with the characters he created who aren't really fans of his narrative decisions. Now, Opus is...
1: Unfinished. Dude! Again, unfinished works. Why? My God, why, Ryan?
0: (laughs) Unfortunately, Roman, Opus will remain unfinished as Satoshi Kohn died in 2010 of pancreatic cancer aged 46. Now, if you're familiar with Kohn or Khan, I'm actually not, I'm not, I actually don't know. It's probably through the movies he directed like Perfect Blue or Paprika or his TV series Paranoia Agent. His work has a modest cult following in the US, but It has been highly influential to filmmakers like Darren Aronofsky and Christopher Nolan. And a common theme across almost all of it are characters wrestling with what is real and what is not. Are we actually in a dream? Are we actually in a movie or a comic book? Or are we in a podcast? Or is this podcast entirely in your head? Anyway, Cone often uses that tension to support deeper, more emotional themes, namely characters struggling to understand who they truly are, and Opus is really an early attempt at this. One of the reasons it's unfinished is because Cohn had started working on his first feature film, Perfect Blue. So like the characters in Opus, we're going to dive right in and see how it all works.
1: I'm Roman Segel. And I'm Ryan Joe, And we're two dudes lost in our own heads.
0: So, Roman, were you familiar with uh, Satoshi Cone, and, and how did you respond to Opus?
1: Not familiar. You know, I I have a gaping hole in my pop culture, pop comics knowledge when it comes to manga. And I have an appreciation for it when I read stuff that's good. I just, because of this podcast, you pulled me into a few. And I was nervous because I was like, Ryan's going to fuck with my head again. <laughs> like, he's going to show me some stuff that's just going to weird me out. And you actually recommended a couple of Pone or Khan's anime which I didn't watch, unfortunately. And that's that's another thing. But I enjoyed this, I guess, as much as I do any manga that I read. It felt like, I was thinking about it this afternoon, it was a fun, wild ride. It was popcorn-y with a gimmick. So there was action, there was pace, a relatively limited set of characters, a modest development arc to those characters because it was all in service of the gimmick which they kept running through, which was fine. So I had a lot of fun with it. And I didn't, I kind of left it at face value. I don't know if I'll get layers on reading it over and over, but I was like, I I can, I can see why people enjoy this. I can see why Kona is respected, but it just felt like a really good manga. And hey, that was fun.
0: Yeah, actually. So my initial impression when I read it uh, a few years ago was that it was mind blowing. And that was kind of my recollection of it. Like the first time you saw the Matrix mind blowing? Yeah. Yeah, in a way. You know what? Because I wasn't that familiar with comics that really break that fourth wall so aggressively. I mean, obviously, you know, it, it's happened before. Deadpool
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: did it a lot. Cerebus, mm-hmm. Dave Sim, Cerebus did it a few times. But that, you know, even in those comics, it's sort of like it's an occasional thing that happens versus Opus. That is actually like a central element of this well of,
1: of of the narrative in a comic well, and when, when a comic breaks the fourth wall they break the fourth wall and talk to you what happened with this is you're watching the characters break a fourth wall because there's no inter there's no interaction with with chikara and us for the most part right it's but the walls are being broken for him from his creations to him and it's not until the very end that they sort of come into reality so it's, it's not quite the fourth wall but it is the That's
0: uh, that's actually interesting. Actually, I, I would dispute that. I don't necessarily think breaking the fourth wall requires you requires the characters to address you the reader directly. I think it requires the characters to understand that they are within a book, a comic book
1: or a movie. To me that's the definition. Like But 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 but, what, but whether when, they address you when, or not is incidental. But when this book starts the and oh okay, to be fair, I'm about to be technically wrong here, but when the book starts the characters that you care about and the characters that you're following is the manga creator chikara and chikara does not break the wall to us chikara's characters break the wall to him
0: that's true <laughs> but, well no but that's still breaking the fourth wall though isn't it i mean the fact that the characters understand that they are fundamentally in a it's, comic but book.
1: it's not our fourth wall
0: so first off does that
1: does that matter it does because Why? this is effectively a story about alternate dimensions. So the fourth the fourth wall literally is the wall between me and the page. Not Chikara's fourth wall. I'm just reading a story about Chikara hopping alternate dimensions for all in, in those alternate dimensions happen to be his fourth wall. But and again, it's still an entertaining concept. This is just a normal guy writing comic books. It seems very normal until that one crazy thing happened. And again, it's a wild ride to watch it happen. But again, it didn't have the – because when a comic does break the fourth wall, when Deadpool does talk to you, when the silver surfer jumps out of the page and meets his creator, right, those – like drawing him, right? Well, okay, so maybe that that is kind of what's happening. Hmm but i guess it would have felt more fourth wally if chikara truly was satoshi Kone, and it kind of is yeah. until you know the unfinished final chapter i guess to me like whether they whether they actually talk to you
0: you know the reader you know whether they kind of like come up to that level is sort of is sort of incidental to me what matters is that this is a book where the characters know that they're in a comic book and a lot of the adventures are about kind of playing with the language of the comic, playing with the act of creating the comic. Like for instance, there are scenes where, you know, they're trying to flee the bad guy and they try to go to the borders of the comic and suddenly the backgrounds are all shitty and the characters, all the, all the supporting characters are all sketched in. And, you know, one of the the heroines like, what the hell is this? And and, and is like, oh, yeah, I didn't really pay attention to this part of the comic. I just kind of sketched in everything really loosely. <laughs> so, you know, stuff like that. That's kind of like the charm that that this sort of metafictional gameplay sort of brought charm's the right word charm's
1: the right word yeah yeah because you feel you feel a wink and a nod to you the reader literally that moment when Jakarta's like yeah i was kind of lazy and it's actually a throwback to at the beginning of the comic he's talking with his buddy who who does all his backgrounds for him you know and he's like i don't give a shit about doing the backgrounds
0: and i do like how cone freshens up the gimmick so the first thing is Okay, you think when you first start out that you're reading an adventure comic, then you realize you're just looking at the boards of the creator, and then the creator gets sucked in. And then as that progresses, Cone keeps throwing like interesting, weird concepts at you. Like, for instance, suddenly the, the female heroine that Chikara created you know, actually starts to get really pissed off. At the creator for putting her through a whole bunch of like, childhood trauma, and yeah, spiritual childhood trauma, which I do want to talk about actually, because I have really mixed feelings about the specific type of childhood trauma she she experienced. The book takes a really, really, really kind of dark turn, despite still being an adventure book. But I, I kind of appreciated, you know, the the constant way Cone keeps you on your toes in terms of what happens. It never really. Gets too tired and maybe that's one of the reasons why he never really returned to it like because after a while it's sort of like, well, where are you going to go from here?
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and that's it felt like through the book, and even through, I don't remember what the name of Jakara's comic resonance, I believe um, resonance. Yeah, in. I could never tell if Resonance was just like an ongoing weekly magazine that had been going on for months and months and years and years and years and years, and and he'd been torturing these characters, or even if Opus was meant to be this ongoing, continuing thing to your point of he didn't know where it was going. And, you know, I like that they allude to Satoko's, probably just butchering these names, but Satoko's backstory. I really enjoyed, no, I was annoyed, but I enjoyed Kind of Lin's petulance of like, I'm gonna Hitler's baby this thing, like. Mm-hmm. But I was like, do you not understand how time travel works, Lin? If you do this, you unravel everything. And even like the jokes with I think Lin's younger sister and them calling Shakara God or the creator. There's a lot of yeah. humorous beats, and and I I think I don't think Cone fleshed it out fully. He just wanted to play with this concept, and this this entire book felt like improv. It was kind of leading to something, but it's like the twists and turns didn't feel calculated. But I was okay with it. I was along for the ride. I was having fun with, oh, what else could we do with this concept? What else could we do with this concept? How else can Lin fuck things up, et cetera, et cetera.
0: I think uh, Resonance is like this huge series of manga, like Lone Wolf and Cub or something like that. You know, just like a long series because you see it on bookshelves. Like he's obviously been working on this for a while. And it ends, essentially, they go back and deal with the villain that appeared in volume one. And then at the at the very end, they break through volume one, and then they end up in volume two. And that's essentially where the book stops. That's where Cohn stopped creating it. He has this kind of like quick epilogue ending that's almost sort of like, yeah, sorry, guys, got to wrap it up, which actually kind of fits the the, the tone of the of the comic. And I, but I am kind of wondering what the greater plan is. There is there is a plan then to just kind of journey through volume, you know, two through however many volumes of resonance there is, and kind of deal with problems as they, as they come up. But, um, but then the,
1: the gimmick it ended nicely when it should have. You know, like leave the party when everyone wants you to stay because the gimmick would get tired. And honestly, you're fucking with the space time continuum. You're literally, and they talk about this right. Like Lynn, if you fuck this up, everything will cease to exist. You cannot do this. And these sort of things. And by the way, something that they didn't do enough with, like, I wanted to understand more about the reincarnation and all of that stuff with Lynn. So, again, maybe that's a good thing. I didn't understand everything. There was clearly a lot more backstory because this opus was built on the world build of Resonance, which clearly is part of the story that had been built o- over probably a decade.
0: The story of resonance that the the comic that Shikara is working on it was actually kind of like the least interesting cuz it's sort of like a by the numbers a cop is brought up tough and she has to take down this evil psychic. It's you know it's very very familiar stuff for for you and me who've been reading like comics and science fiction for a very long time. And what was interesting to me was the the interplay between the Chikara's reality and the the reality that he created in the comic what was also interesting that I was what is the female heroines name again Sotoka Uh, Satoko. Yeah, you know, was her reaction to everything and how, you know, the realization that all of the suffering she went through, and she went through a lot of suffering, was just an act of creation.
1: Propel the story. Designed
0: for for entertainment. And so for me, that was the stuff that I was most interested in seeing Cone explore. But I kind of got the sense towards the end of it, right? When when they kind of journey back to Volume 1 and take on like the child serial killer, that it had kind of just gone back to its. Roots as a basic adventure that obviously is hopping between the time continuum. But at the same time, the the conflicts that they are facing is, ac- are actually pretty, pretty basic because what are they trying to do in, in capturing the, the serial killer? Like what is the goal for the, for the heroes here? Well, they're not, I'm not Remember, sure they're
1: trying to stop Lynn and they, it, it's a classic, it, it morphs into a classic time paradox, which that was kind of fun because it was like, A nested egg it's like okay first we have this fourth wall breaking thing and now you're just classic time paradox you can't do this or we'll all cease to exist because they're actually there to stop lynn they're not there to stop the serial killer the serial killer has to kill the detective has to do the terrible things or the world falls apart and again i'm a sucker for those time travel episodes in star trek or anything else so cool cool to see it kind of play out in the genre Which, again, I'm not as familiar with manga. One thing I I did find interesting, and I I want to ask you this. It felt like all the characters, be it Satoko, the mask villain guy, even Lin, the hero. They all kind of felt very stereotypically manga. Like, they they felt very archetypes. They did. And I think... Purposely so, I would imagine.
0: Probably intentional, definitely for Satoko and Lin.
1: Felt like, oh, he's the everyman. He's the reader. He's the you know, the writer who's trying to make it. So, I don't know.
0: We get little glimpses of, of you know, characters that don't feel like archetype, archetypal manga characters. You know, usually the people that Satoko's doing business with, his real-life girlfriend, you know, they have, like, some lines of dialogue that's actually kind of mundane and much more grounded in reality. It didn't bother me that much that the that most of the characters felt like stereotypical manga creations. I would have actually liked a little bit more acknowledgement of that cuz cuz oh, once they the realize their personalities, character personalities, once
1: they realize their characters are well, like oh i'm just like this because of that
0: well yeah we well so like for instance uh, a lot of their their emotions are heightened you know they're either like they're 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 screaming or you know whatever that's as as they do in manga and it would be kind of cool if shikara kind of acknowledged that like maybe he thinks god i should have got made you guys a little bit less emotional <laughs> something where he's kind of playing with where he's kind of playing with that heightened emotional reality that happens in manga but doesn't really happen in real life yeah, yeah. that would have been kind of like a cool little interplay and could have also informed the you know, because there are a lot of times when, when Chikara is just kind of like a sidekick towards the end. He's just kind of tagging along. But if you kind of have that where he's sort of regretting some of the character decisions that he made, because as a consequence of that, he's now kind of being roped along in, in right, this adventure right. he doesn't want to be a part of, that would actually be kind of funny. There, I mean, there were, a, uh,
1: there were a couple of moments, but there were more winks and nods when Satoko's in the real world. People are like, oh my god, that's amazing cosplay. Or when Satoko meets Chikara's girlfriend, she's like, huh, she's kind of familiar. Because Satoko is loosely based on his girlfriend, apparently, right? So winks and nods, but they would have been better executed to your point of Chikara commenting on his creation when living in his creation.
0: What, what do you think about the ending? I mean, not not the ending ending, but I guess the the serial killer at the end. Um, because that's where, up to that point, the threats, you know, Lin's kind of a cartoon character. And then the mask who hypnotizes everybody and transforms. It's scary but kind of scary in a comic book way. And then at the end you have um this serial killer who's I mean you have I think you have a couple of images of like little girls who are tied up and with their underwear pulled down and it just seems so much darker and seedier than the previous threats. For me it was the fact that the book kept treating itself like an adventure story, but just kind of having this imagery which is so much darker, felt a little bit—I don't know what the right word is.
1: Well, the the thing I like that the the two concepts that they bring up towards the end of the book is time travel and reincarnation. Apparently, Lynn, the main hero in Resonance, is a reincarnation of this detective that died. Okay, interesting, cool, and. What I found interesting was, you know, at the beginning of the book, the big bad, the villain, is also a reincarnation of this serial killer that that we've just referred to, Ryan. And I guess Lynn's mission was as a detective, he comes back in his next life to stop this bad guy. And in the present, they're both superpowered telepaths, basically fighting each other. Yeah. And in the past, it's very kind of much more gritty and real and scarier. It's just a detective trying to do his job and an evil, maniacal serial killer who's cross-dressing and kidnapping girls and all these things, it's much more grounded in reality. I mean, he he is. Yeah. They are telepathic, but they're kind of both unaware of their power. But at their core, it's good guy detective, bad guy, serial killer, doing very real things that are disturbing to us because they're very real. There's no superpowers involved with the, the evil that they're doing. And that's why it's more disturbing. And I, It's almost ironic that In this book, that's a commentary on reincarnation and, you know, superheroes and all these things. The most disturbing thing is the most real thing.
0: Right. So I totally agree with you, like, 100%. Can we record that
1: and just, like, play that on a loop for every episode? That'd be good.
0: The point I'm trying to make, though, is, like, what did you think of that? Because it's
1: it's a lot. I like here's it, it, it. It was a gut punch. Sorry. So if it was after this kind of wild fun ride, Wachowski, Christopher Nolan, sort of fourth wall breaking time travel thing it all comes down to a detective and a serial killer and yeah. mo- these two characters i would argue even more so than shikara are more real than any other characters portrayed in this entire book and that's why it was upsetting
0: yeah i guess for me it's it's that and maybe this is a product of the book cutting off at this point because there's a, there is a shift between this sort of like adventurous hijinks in the first part where the where the villain the mask is a reincarnation of this really seedy ugly serial killer who's ostensibly raping girls versus at the end when you see you know him as a serial killer and he's like stripping a girl with his knife i guess for me it felt unearned that was the word i was looking for so because it's, it's it takes just such a hard it's such a
1: hard turn for you
0: it's a hard turn, but you kind of need... And again, this could be a product of the book not being finished, right? It kind of just ends right there in that sort of seedy territory. And we don't know what, what was going to happen next or how Satoshi Kon planned to you know, justify some of the decisions that he did or what he was trying to set up in making these decisions. It just kind of ends in this sort of like seedy area. It's just because things get darker. I mean, it's it, it feels like there needs to be some reason for that to happen. And I didn't see the reason quite yet. And again, it might have just been a case of, you
1: know, the book stopped. So that's kind of it. Almost kind of like the actual book having to end in in resonance. It, it, it's an abrupt start. I, I hear you on it kind of being unearned. I, I do agree to that. But again, for me the whole thing felt like improv. Now we're doing this. Now we're doing that. Now the story's like this. Now the story's like that. Oh, the older girl's gonna meet herself as a young girl in the elevator. Like, you know, they just kept pulling. I would, but I was almost conditioned to like, okay, I guess now it's hard-boiled and detective and Silence of the Lambs at the end. I was just like, I guess that's where they're going with it. So I, I hear you on the unearned yeah. thing, but my expectation was, it was kind of par for the course of this book to keep taking weird, zigs and zags when you expected it to zag and zig
0: yeah i guess that's why i'm sort of conflicted right because there's a part of me that really does like i kind of said earlier he keeps changing things up making weird decisions that you don't expect and that's actually to the benefit of the book i mean if we knew where it was going to go we get bored of it really really quickly the fact that we don't and it just keeps as you said it feels like improv he's kind of making it up as he goes along that creates a lot of really interesting surprises and narrative decisions. And some of them, you know, looking back at it, maybe they don't work entirely or they don't go all the way. Mm -hmm. What did you think though? Like, like as, as you're kind of being jerked along, were you like down with it? Were were you, were you enjoying it? Or were you just kind of getting fed up and kind of worried that this isn't going to go anywhere and that there's no point to anything that you're reading?
1: Definitely not fed up because early on, like 10% of the way, and I was just like, I'm along for the ride. Let's see where this goes. And I think one of the things I texted you is like, man, it just felt like a manga, but with a twist, you know? And, and the, the problem is it kept twisting and twisting and twisting. And again, which is why I hate to speak ill of the dead, but like, is this his greatest work? I don't know. Is this a great work? I don't think so. Is this a really unique and fun book to read? Sure. You know, like I'm pretty disappointed in myself that I didn't get to watch Paprika Paprika. But, you know, some of the things I was looking up, you had mentioned, so Satoshi Kon, just for the audience, he, as Ryan said earlier, he made a bunch of manga, but he's more known for, he jumped out of manga, comic book, Japanese comics, and went to anime, Japanese animation. So animated features. And he made four, which a lot of people seem to like. And apparently one of them, Paprika, was inspiration for Inception, which I was checking the dates. This book was in the 90s. And then I guess in the early 2000s, before he passed away, he made a bunch of films. And then I guess Christopher Nolan watched one of them. But I I guess my, my point is I was fine with it because it's not necessarily source material, but it is a very unique way to kind of break the walls and like keep diving in and diving in and nesting into these things. So it's not a polarizing book because I don't really care enough about it. I I kind of got my transactional fun, which, and honestly, that's the way I feel about manga and, like, uh, superhero comics in the U.S. It's just like, eh, you know, pick it up, get a quick read. Doesn't really move you, doesn't really do much. Yeah, so not offended, but not, like, not blown away, I guess is what I'd say, Ryan.
0: I decided to watch Perfect Blue again because that was basically the movie that took him away from Opus. He was working on both of them at the same time. Oh, okay. And he just even thinking about Paprika... Because both of them still kind of play with that nature of like, what is reality? What is real for these characters? But even Perfect Blue is a much more accomplished piece of, of storytelling. Now, they're both based off of novels. So he did have somebody else's framework to hang his ideas off of. But first off, like when I was thinking about those two movies, they're a lot more complicated because oftentimes you as the viewer don't know what is real and what is not and so there's a playfulness there where the where satoshi kone is kind of teasing you you know you think it's Mm, real it's not mm. you think it's not real it is it's actually and then it really kind of like will screw you up opus is a lot more basic it's it you out you always know when he's in a comic you always know when he's in his reality it's pretty binary and i almost wonder if he needed to do that more basic version of the meta-narrative before he could really kind of play with the stuff that he does in the anime where he really is trying to confuse the viewer where they are in the narrative are they you know whether they're in the in the, in the real world or whether they're in some? but I, of I think i feel like that's
1: easier to do in an anime or in sight, yeah. sound emotion because when you're reading you can always flip like if you do get lost you do get a little confused I just flip back a few pages <laughs> and and check my check myself. When you're watching a movie, I mean, I guess you can pause and rewind, but mo- more often than not, you're not going to. Right? You're you're in it. You're figuring it out as you go. You're on your feet. With a comic, you can't really kind of do the bait and switch as well.
0: To an extent, I was also thinking about that too. There are a lot more cues that he can use to either inform you as where you like. He can use audio cues the way characters move to kind of indicate whether you are in a dream world or you're in a reality or, you know, so he definitely has more, more tricks that he can rely on. But at the same time, it's still visual storytelling. And, you know, in perfect blue, there's sort of like this constant, there's this almost groundhog day style scene where the character keeps waking up, waking up, waking up. And it's sort of like the same image with little changes in, you know, in like what she's wearing, for instance, that kind of cues you into, you know, what's going on. And, you know, that's something that you can replicate in a comic. But the other thing that I think he does really well in his movies that doesn't really happen here is like he kind of teases a little bit with in opus. You know, Satoko has a personality. She has agency. She's really upset about, you know, the fact that she's a fictional character and she's been made to suffer. But he doesn't really push that that far. Which I, and, um, I, and I
1: think that tension the interaction between Chikara and Satoko could have been so much more. The her, yeah. her litigating the you fucked up my life for the sake of selling comic books and his fondness for her, his fondness and his neglect of her over the years as a creation. But now that they're kind of going through this Hollywood style movie together, breaking realities, a bond is starting to form. Right. And I'm, I'm not talking romantic bond. And so, I mean, he apologizes to her like once or twice, but like, that was the relationship of the book that they could have done more with, and they chose not to. In
0: his movies, he uses that, the gimmick to explore the emotions of the characters, and then he carries that all the way through to the end. Fundamentally, what he's trying to do is explore some emotional state of the characters, and the gimmick is just the means through, by which he's able to do it. And here, in Opus, it's almost a flip, right? The gimmick is the gimmick. The gimmick is the point, which you kind of picked up on, on earlier. And so you you actually kind of lose some of the dramatic stakes that you really want in a book that's, you know, would otherwise, you know, grab you emotionally.
1: Do you think, so do you think some of that is because he was making that movie? So he's kind of splitting his attention?
0: I mean, it's speculating It's possible. It's also, you know, the movie does have a beginning, middle, and an end. And if he's making this up as he goes along, you're not going to have the character arcs really thought out. So I think, I don't know if it's just like his attention was elsewhere. I think he was just pursuing a story that, where, where a character had a really defined arc. So as far as storytelling mediums are concerned, his movies are much more compact. They're only like an hour and a half, two hours long. And they all go somewhere. There's always, there's always a point to it. And every time he makes a narrative decision in his movies, it's kind of leading to that, to that point. It's so like pushed the character, push the, push the plot further here. It's just sort of like, all right, this is cool. Let's try this
1: out. So I guess you could say this is one of those few instances where the movie is better than the book.
0: I would say his movies are definitely better than Opus. Um, But I did, you know, you do enjoy, you do enjoy Opus. (laughs) Yeah, I did enjoy Opus. I mean, I've always kind of, you know, as sort of like a madcap adventure story that Mm -hmm. takes place between the panels. It's a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, and also I was kind of like flipping through some of his older manga, like his short stories. And those are rough. Like, there are, like Sometimes I'm just lost. It's like, what the hell sort of story are you trying to tell? What is going on here? Who are these characters? You know, Opus, his last manga, he knows how to tell the story clearly. And it seems like in his movies, that's where he really kind of figures out how to, how to end the story and how to make all of the little gimmicks and tricks that he's interested in tie into, into,
1: into a real human drama. So, Ryan, I have a question for you, and it's not the question you think I, I'm going to ask. Manga is a form it's, it's not just Japanese comic books. It's that's reductive for me to say that. And having only read probably 10 to 20 mangas in my kind of comic book reading years, I, by no means think I've read the greats, you know, what are the greats? This was just a book that you liked that you had some fun with that you want to get my take. Right. But like, if, if we lived in Japan and we're doing quarantine comics, what are the mangas that we would be reading? Dude,
0: I really don't know because I'm not a manga person either. Uh, you kind of queued me up as sort of like the guy who introduced you to manga, but I've only, again, like the reason I stumbled into It was like borderline racist of me. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly, right, man? Did you know I'm Chinese, not Japanese? Um,
1: same, same, but different?
0: So, you know, so I've read Ghost in the Shell. I've read part of Akira. I've read Blade of the Immortal. But again, all of this stuff is the stuff that's been imported into the United States. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's all kind of, you know, been sort of mainstreamed so as far as like what is what are the actual big mangas i don't, i i honestly don't know most of the manga i've quote-unquote discovered it's only been incidental i haven't really gone down that that rabbit hole so yeah i i, I genuinely don't know hey if any of our readers are listening and no
1: you mean any of our email. listeners are reading
0: if any of our listeners what did i say i said if any of our readers are listening yes if any of our listeners are listening or reading <laughs> or reading whatever send us an email let us know what we're missing because honestly I don't know manga as well as I'd like to and you know I'm down to going down that going into that into that rabbit hole just as Shikara went down into his rabbit hole and met his met his characters
1: so can I ask you another question
0: What's another question
1: What are we reading next week?
0: So next week, and really for the next five weeks, we're going to be doing our series Subversive DC, where we read comics that give completely strange new takes on your favorite DC superheroes. So next week, we'll kick things off with Tom King's Mr. Miracle. We all know Mr. Miracle, a.k.a. Scott Free, the superhero who can escape from anything and everything. He's kind of boring. He's usually a supporting character in like Superman's adventures. But that gives King tremendous opportunity to peel back the layers of Mr. Miracle and put him in really interesting and unusual scenarios. Basically, his Mr. Miracle is trying to escape the labyrinth of his own depression and PTSD. After that, we'll look at Grant Morrison's Batman Arkham Asylum, where scared little Bruce Wayne runs around a haunted house. And in our third week, we'll take a look at Mark Millar's Superman Red Sun. What if Superman crash-landed in Russia instead of Kansas? And our fourth week, will bring you a Green Lantern murder mystery, written by the famed sci-fi writer N.K. Jemisin. And finally, we'll round things out with the most subversive superhero of all, Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen by Matt Fraction. Remember, we reviewed Fraction's run on Hawkeye just a few months back, so... That's what we've got in store. A lot of screwed up things happening to your favorite superheroes. I love me some subversive superheroes.